This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 8, verses 2 to 11. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. We've been looking at uh, a series over the last couple months uh, called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And <clears throat> this, uh, this series, uh, when we say it's hard, we're saying things that have been difficult to hear for us in the Bible over the years. Um, we kind of bypassed them, ignored them over the years maybe because they're difficult to understand. And that's what it means to hear these hard sayings. That on the one hand, it's difficult, but also it's like hard candy. You've got to put it in your mouth, let it kind of melt in your mouth. And as you savor the richness and the flavor, you start to understand. It starts to, you, that's when you really get to see how good it is. You know, it's kind of like impressionistic art from the outside. It, it kind of looks like something. As you get closer, it gets more fuzzy. Uh, so we kind of like to stay on the outskirts. But as you get closer, as you get more near, that's where you start to see the texture. That's where you start to see the nuances. And that's how, and as you get closer, um, that's when you start to see the richness of the whole work of art. In this passage, <clears throat> if you look in your Bibles, in this passage, it's bracketed. And I'm not going to really go into explaining the brackets, although I could, and we can take some time. If you have questions, we can talk about it. But um, the brackets are around this text because the the consensus throughout history, the scholarly consensus around this text was that it was not written by the author John himself. In fact, if you talk to me, and I can certainly talk to you about this uh, some other time, but I believe that it was written by Luke because of the nuances and certain phrases that are used over and over and, and just a lot of other things, and we're not going to get into that. But nevertheless, there's almost complete, unan- almost complete unanimity that the scholars and commentators believe that this was still an eyewitness account by a gospel author. And why is this passage in the Bible? What does it teach us? It's going to teach us three things today. It's going to teach us about the gentleness of Jesus. It's going to teach us about the confidence of Jesus. It's going to teach us about the pardon, the forgiveness of Jesus, so that ultimately we could be free. We can be free to become gentle and confident at the same time just like Jesus is, um, in the same way that Jesus is. The gentleness, the confidence, and the forgiveness, or the pardon of Jesus. Okay, first, we're going to go into the gentleness of Jesus. And you see this in verses 2 to 6. Here's what's going on. The teachers, they bring this woman. She was literally caught in the act of adultery. They bring her up to Jesus, and they ask, you know, what do you say about this? What do you say? Twice this text, if you read this text, twice it says that this woman was caught in the act. Why does it say that? It's because 
you know, in Leviticus, in the Old Testament books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the Mosaic Law, adultery was punishable by death. It was a capital offense. Punishable by death. And uh, Jesus wasn't asked by these teachers, by these scribes, by these Pharisees, uh, he wasn't asked if the woman was guilty. Right? They didn't ask, you know, do you think, is this woman guilty or not? Um, the guilt was known. The guilt was understood. She was caught in the act. They asked, her about, they asked him about the penalty. What's the penalty here? Why did they do that? You see, the law was extremely just, but it was also generous in doling out capital punishment. Today, you know, in the modern legal system today, if there's just a probability of guilt, you can be convicted. But in those days, even though the law was extremely just, it was extremely generous. And, and the laws around evidence was a lot stricter. You, you know, in order to convict somebody of adultery, you literally needed two witnesses seeing the person in the act. It wasn't enough to see the, you know, two, uh, a man and a woman walk out of a room. That wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to see two women walk in the room. It wasn't even enough to see two people naked in the room together. You literally had to catch them in the act of adultery. You had to see the sexual act happen. So as a result, almost no one was ever convicted, and almost no one was ever executed. This was a brilliant trap as a result. This woman was caught in the act, and the law says you have to execute this person. Jesus, what do you say? Up until this point, Jesus had been teaching about compassion, about forgiveness, about grace, the love of God. But what about justice? What about the law? The teachers, they couldn't stand Jesus' teachings on compassion and forgiveness and grace and the embrace of God. They couldn't couldn't stand it because of the types of people that it drew in. And uh, it really demeaned them in some ways. Uh, the gospel was starting to look, the law seemed to look very, very cheap, uh, cheap. And so they were looking for a way to trap Jesus. And so this woman was really like a tool. You know, her life didn't really matter to these people. She was merely used uh, as a tool to catch Jesus in a trap. And, and what's the trap? You know, on one hand, if Jesus saves the woman, then he tramples on the law. But if he chooses to uphold the law and execute the woman, then he tramples on grace. And Jesus would not be for the outcast. He would not be forgiving. All the talk about the compassion of God. He would not look meek. He would not look lowly. Uh, It would disprove altogether that he's the Messiah. All this talk about grace, you know, he's not able to hold this together. That's what they're thinking. He's not going to be able to hold these things together. They're going to trap him. That's what they thought. So either he's going to disregard the woman or he's going to disregard the law, but you can't uphold the woman and the law. Either you're going to have to be moral and you trample on grace and religion. That's the reason why in religion, you know, religious people, they're always throwing stones. That's why they do that. Either you're going to have to be moral and you trample on grace, or you're going to have to be gracious and you're going to have to trample on the law. But you cannot be both moral and gracious You can't uh, uphold the woman and the law. You can't uphold the law and be compassionate. And to deny even one aspect of Jesus' character is to deny him and his claims altogether. You see, brilliant trap. How does Jesus respond? How does he respond? Look at the gentleness of Jesus here. Look at the humility of Jesus. You know, on one hand, he doesn't treat the woman as beneath him. Not once do you see that. You're going to see that later. He doesn't treat the woman as beneath him. 
But at the same time, you know, the teachers, you know, they're scornful. They're, they're humiliating this woman. They make her stand in front of everyone, probably naked, and they're cruel to him. You know, history has been littered with examples of cruelty to women, right? But look at Jesus. Even though she is morally beneath him, morally, he doesn't treat her as beneath him. Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come to me if you're weary, if you're weak, if you're heavy laden. You know what it means to be heavy, to be burdened? Even if you're burdened, he says, I will give you rest. Why? Because he says, I'm gentle and I'm lowly at heart. I'm meek and I'm lowly at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. That's why, you know, Judas, Judas is about to betray Jesus. What does Jesus do? He washes Judas' feet. He dips bread into water and he feeds him at the supper. He doesn't say, no, you can't have any. I know what you're about to do. That's not what he says. He feeds him. You know, that's why the disciples, they go up to a mountain and Jesus says, I need you to pray. I need you to pray. And they fall asleep. But Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And in this passage, you know, he could have wiped out the teachers. He could have wiped out the woman, but he doesn't. He's so gentle. He's so humble. He's so wise. We act superior a lot of times because we feel inferior. That's the opposite of humility. That's the opposite of gentleness. That's why we're always judging people. You know why? It's because our egos, our egos are always starving. You know what you need to do? You need to starve your ego. You need to starve, you need to get rid of the superiority in your life. But look at Jesus. He knows he's superior. He knows he's superior. So what does he do? He lowers himself. Complete freedom from the need to starve any ego, to feed his ego. You know, on one hand, the gospel gives you assurance, uh, gives you certainty. And as a result, you don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to feed your ego because you're absolutely certain of who you are, where you're headed, and, and you're sure. But it also gets rid of cowardice. It also gets rid of fear. You're not afraid of what other people think of you. It frees you from the neediness uh, uh, for approval. And when you don't have the need to prove yourself and you're not afraid of what other people think of you, you can be confident yet gentle, completely gentle. That's humility. Verses 2 to 6, that's the humility, the gentleness of Jesus. Now, the second point is the confidence of Jesus. And you see this in the next uh, three to four verses, verses six to nine. Um, <clears throat> if you look at Jesus, what does he do? They bring this woman and they say, they explain what the law is meant to do and what do you say? What does Jesus do? He just bends down and starts to write on the ground. Why does he do that? And it always confused me as to why he did that. Now, what did he write? Commentators and scholars throughout centuries have been trying to figure out lots of theories about what he was writing on the ground, things about the law, the Roman law, and, and traditions, and, and what other things he might have been saying to make them feel bad, and that's why they walked away. We don't really know. That's the net of it. You know, why did the author include this? Even though we don't really know what Jesus wrote down, there are certain things about this that we need to know. Number one, you know, the author intended to tell us news. He was reporting news to us. He was writing history. This is not some sort of action film. This is not some sort of action script. This is not some sort of, in the ancient fictional genre in those days, you would never include details like this that were too, it's too mundane. You would leave those details out and only leave the action sequences. This passage would never have made it in to a fiction genre that day, in that day. Um, it was too mundane. The author was writing to us 
and showing us even little details like this because it actually happened, number one. The second thing, the second reason why is because John was trying to get us to see, look at the poise of Jesus. You know, he's not shaken up at all. He's not even going to answer their question. Life or death situation. What are you going to do, Jesus? Just sits down, starts writing on the ground. Look at the poise of Jesus. Look at the confidence of Jesus. He's not rattled. He doesn't bend. He physically bends to write, but he doesn't bend. You know, there was, <clears throat> I promised myself, because being an Asian, you know, that I would never bring a Bruce Lee, you know, quote or anything like that into uh, up at front, but I have to do this. Remember the movie Enter the Dragon? Okay, if you haven't seen it, it's an old movie, you know, 1970s. Uh, Bruce Lee, Enter the Dragon. Uh, you have O'Hara, you know, the tall Caucasian, you know, big man. You know, he comes in, and they're about to face each other, basically in a fight to the death. And O'Hara starts out, he takes his big uh, board, and he hits it. He's like, ah! Bruce Lee just sits there, stands there, and he says, boards don't hit back. So poised, so confident right? What's the, you know, Jesus says, I'm meek and I'm lowly at heart. I'm meek and lowly at heart. But he demonstrates tremendous poise, tremendous confidence. What's he saying here? The actual word in Greek, you know, for meek and lowly at heart is praus. Praus. It comes from the image of this powerful animal, but holding himself back, submissive. You ever watch like the Preakness, a horse race? I'm not really big into horses, but every once in a while you see highlights of horse races. You have these enormous, powerful animals. You know, they're so finely tuned and honed at their craft. And they're racing down this runway, right? But they're incredibly meek. They say that the most powerful animal that wins the race is always the meekest horse in the race because look at this little rider. They always have these little jockeys on them, right? But so meek, so submissive are these animals. That's the image. That's Jesus. These animals are wild and crazy, but they voluntarily submit. That's humility. That's meekness. Power under submission. Courage, underlying gentleness. You know, Jesus could have commanded, when he was on the cross, Jesus could have commanded the angels to come and to save them. He could have commanded them to come and wipe everybody out, and they would have, to help him. But instead, he's submissive to the Father all the way to the point of death. And so as a result, what does he do? He's receptive of the Pharisees. He doesn't wipe them out. He's receptive of this woman. He doesn't wipe her out. And you never mistake Jesus' meekness for weakness. It's an unfortunate thing that those two words rhyme, and they seem like they mean the same thing, but they don't. They mean the opposite. Meekness is not weakness. To be meek is to be gentle but powerful. Gentle because you're powerful. That's what meekness is. That's Joseph in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament. Joseph, at the tail end of the book, you know, he's, in, he's been in prison for over a decade. And he finally gets taken out because of a dream that the Pharaoh had. And Joseph has the ability to interpret dreams. So they bring him out. He's been in prison for a crime that he had not committed for over a decade. And, he you know, and he's there to interpret the dream, and the dream is bleak. He could have minced his words. He could have told the Pharaoh just to get on his good side. He could have said something good. But instead, he says, you know what? Your kingdom's about to topple. And here's what you need to do. So humble and yet powerful. That's Joseph. It's the image of Daniel in the book of Daniel, one of the prophets in the Old Testament. 
He is before the most powerful ruler of his day, the Babylonian king. You know, and what does he do? He tells him, this is what your dream means. Your kingdom is going to fall apart. Your days are numbered. These are exact words. Your days are numbered. Incredibly respectful, but tremendous poise, tremendous courage. He could have been wiped out on the spot. Tremendous courage. Why is it that Moses is able to approach Pharaoh? Moses comes before Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh was the most powerful king in, in, his world, in the world to date, the Egyptian empire at the time. And basically, in essen- essentially, he says, here's what you need to do. This is Moses. He says, you need to overturn your armies. You're going to have to just hold back your armies, surrender, basically, and let the weakest group of people uh, in your kingdom, you're going to have to let them go. Basically, what you're saying is, I apologize to you for all those things that we've done to you for 400 years. I'm going to let you go free. Go ahead, because I'm weak to be able to do anything to you. That's what I need you to do. It says in Numbers chapter 12 that Moses was the most humble man in all the earth. He was meek. Look at Jesus. Gentle. Humble. Poised at the same time. Inner calmness. There's a life or death situation here, but he's unrattled, completely unrattled. He just starts, gets down and starts writing on the ground. Incredible power and yet controlled. He has courage. He has bravery. This is real power. That's real power. That's real courage. But he chooses to be low. He chooses to be weak. And that's the point. You know, in Revelation chapter 5, written by the Apostle John here who wrote this book, in Revelation chapter 5, there's there's this passage that says, you know, behold the lion. And John looks to behold the lion, and there is a lamb there's a lamb, and in fact, it's a messed up lamb, you know? And so he starts, you're asking yourself, so is, it a, is Jesus a lion or is it a lamb? And that's the whole point of this. Some people, when they look at Jesus, they see the courage of Jesus, the power of Jesus. But other people who look at Jesus, they see the gentleness of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. So which of it is he? Which one is he? And the answer is what? He's both. And if you see Jesus for everything that he is, gentle and courageous, a lion and a lamb, then you yourself, if you're changed by that, you will become like a lion and a lamb at the same time. Do you see that? If you're like Jesus, you're going to be both. You're going to be confident and yet unrattled in situations and yet gentle and calm before people, before other people. What does he say? Here's what Jesus says. He says, and this is the heart saying, let him who is without sin let him be the first to cast a stone, right? That's what he says. And I, I presume what you're thinking is this. Basically, what Jesus is saying is that anybody, you know, anybody here who's never sinned at all can cast the first stone. That's what you're thinking. That's what I was thought. Or at least I presume that's what you're thinking. But if you're like me, that's what I was thinking. Um, you know, come on, we're all sinners here. Uh, don't judge. Don't judge. You can't, you know, don't be throwing stones like that. You know, so they were so convicted by what Jesus said that they one by one, they started dropping their rocks and walked away. Now, that's absolutely not the case here. The Pharisees would never have agreed with that kind of logic. They knew they were sinners. They absolutely knew they were sinners. You wouldn't agree with that logic either because you judge people. That's why you know that. You need to say, I shouldn't judge because, you know, but you judge anyway, right? If that logic held true, then even Hitler should be let go. Even serial killers should be let go. Anybody who's done a grievous sin against you, 
hurt you in a terrible way, we have no right to judge them. We should just let them go. You see that? That logic doesn't hold true for anybody. What Jesus was actually doing here was he was quoting the law. And if you see this in Deuteronomy chapter 13, Deuteronomy chapter 17, basically if you're going to be a witness to a crime, the witness also has to be the executioner. And as a result, the witness cannot, the executioner or the witness cannot be guilty of the same type of crime. In other words, in this case, you can't be, if you're the executor, if you're a witness and the executioner, you can't be somebody who's also committed adultery. And Jesus knows that some of these men have committed adultery. Notice it was the oldest ones that started dropping the rocks and walking away first. Okay, he knows. Remember, the law says, you know, you, know, you, have, you have to catch somebody, basically. You have to see someone in order to convict them. And Jesus is saying this, I see you. I know you. I know you. I'm the witness, and I know you. You're not innocent. You're not even innocent of the same crime. You know, you think you've gotten away with these things from a human standpoint because you're crafty and you're intelligent and you're smart and you have resources, but I see you. I absolutely know, and that doesn't mean you've gotten away with it. You think you got away with it, but you haven't gotten away. And Jesus knows the double standard here with women, that history has beaten up women over time. Women have always been, they've always been shown cruelty. Because, and the reason why is because in the law, in the actual Deuteronomic law, the man and the woman were together to be executed if they had committed adultery. But where's the man here in the situation? So there's only three things that could have happened. Either A, these people actually saw the act, but purposely let the man go and only convicted the woman. That means that they're partial and they're biased, and that's also punishable by death. That's what Jesus was saying. Or B, you know, they were part of a conspiracy. They planned the activity, which is even worse, that they actually hired some guy, or maybe it was one of them, or it was some man that they made a deal with, and they planned to catch this woman, also punishable. Or they didn't really see it. And they were false witnesses, which was also equally punishable. Jesus is saying, you know, I'm honoring the law. Of course I'm going to honor the law. Are you kidding? Are you kidding? But what about partiality? What about your double standards? What about your adultery? What about your conspiracy? What about your false witnessing and your lying? You don't have a right even to be a witness here. Even according to the law standards, it is not just for you to even be a witness here. So on one hand, you know, he never says, the stone shouldn't be thrown. This woman is guilty. Clearly this woman was guilty then. He never denies the need for punishment. But what he's saying here is, you are partial. You are filled with double standards. You are liars. You are adulterers. Your ego is starving, and the only way that you could fill it is by throwing stones at other people. So you're beating up this weak person. You're going to humiliate her. You're going to make a tool out of this woman. That's what you're doing this. That's what you're doing. That's why you're doing it. And they're cut to the heart. One by one. The older ones first start to drop their rocks, and start to walk away. They're convicted by their sin, convicted by their hypocrisy. You see the gentleness of Jesus here in this passage, and then you see the power of Jesus here, right? You see the courage and the confidence of Jesus here. But the crux here is the pardon, because it's the pardon of Jesus that's going to set us free. 
Now he turns to the woman. The last three verses, verses 9 to 11, he turns to the woman. And most likely this woman was committing the act. You know, so she's probably naked, standing in front of everybody. She's probably weeping, sobbing, uncontrollable. You know, they let the man go. They let the man go, but what, you know, here he says, woman. And, he, and you know, when we hear that, we're saying, oh my gosh, he's like looking down on her. Actually, the actual word in the Greek is gynai. You know, and that, it's a very respectful term for woman. He's saying, woman, has anyone condemned you? Where are they? They're gone. Has anyone condemned you? I don't condemn you. That's what he says. Such respect for this woman. He doesn't ask, now woman, you know, I want you to tell me your side of the story. That's not what he asks. He doesn't ask, you know, are you guilty? He says, are you condemned? That's what he asks. And the question that he's asking this woman is a question that he's asking you. Are you condemned? Are you let go? Now, if you're really thinking, what you should say is, actually what Jesus should say is, you are guilty and you should be condemned, or you are not guilty and you should not be condemned. But here he's saying, you are guilty, but you are not condemned. This man who's got such authority, you are absolutely guilty, but at the same time you are absolutely free. And this is the crux. This is the most important part. Jesus is in this position where he could trample on the law or trample on grace. But he upholds both law and grace here. His law and his love, right? How does he do both? And here's the crux. Despite his gentleness, Jesus, he doesn't just let her go. He doesn't say, oh, you know what? Thank God, those guys are such bullies. I'm not like that. You know, they're such bullies and these old you know, guys, you know, don't worry about what they said. Don't worry about what they did. Just go, you know, because you know, all that matters is what I think and I think you're great. Um, you know, Jesus doesn't do that. He says, you've got to get rid of the blame shifting. You've got to get rid of the, the victim mentality in your life. Stop blaming religious people for all the ills of the church. Stop doing that. You know, stop blaming religion, religion altogether. He says, you know, that's going to be the real trap. If you do that, that's the real trap because you're blaming circumstances, you know, for how you became who you are and you're overlooking your own heart. How does a person change? How does this woman get changed? Because she gets it. Here's this woman. She's naked and she's broken and she's guilty. And you know how she got it? That's exactly how she got it. How do you get... How do you get the gospel? You have to be naked. You know, you have to be exposed. You have to know your guilt. You have to really, really know your guilt. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. That's how you get it. You know, you have to know that you're guilty, that you're broken. What did this person see? What did this woman see? This woman is standing before the one person who actually knows, the one witness the one person who actually sees, the one person who has a right to execute her. Everybody else dropped their stones. One by one, they walked away, except for Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus never committed that crime or any crime. He was completely innocent. And, yet, and so he remains. And can you imagine the fear of this woman standing before the one person who has the absolute you know, right to throw a stone at her, and there's tons of stones around Right? Because these men just dropped these stones and walked away. So there's plenty of ammunition. And this man who has such power and such authority is standing before her. And yet look at the gentleness. He says, I don't condemn you. You're free. Jesus is literally without sin. 
not just that one sin, not just of adultery, but sin in general, altogether. He's the only one who has a right to cast a stone. And yet, he doesn't throw it at her, and he doesn't just throw it at the Pharisee. He doesn't throw it at her, the irreligious. He doesn't throw it at the Pharisees or the teachers or the scribes, the religious. He doesn't just throw it away, because you can't just throw the stone away. If you've ever been wronged in your life, you know you can't, you know, you know an apology is not enough. You know if the person's just crying before you yeah, and confesses in front of you, you know that even that's not enough. If they really, really hurt you and wronged you, you know that that is not enough. A debt has to be paid. You can't just throw it away. Ah, oh, forget it. You can't just do that. You ever just try to forgive someone like that? Ah, oh, forget it. You know, I know you totally just ruined my life. Forget it. Don't worry about it. Somebody has to swallow the pain. We all understand that. Somebody has to swallow the pain. Forgiveness costs. Somebody has to take the hit. Where does the rock go? Where does the stone get cast? It was rolled over his tomb. This massive stone rolled over Jesus' tomb. In John chapter 10, Jesus predicts that the Son of Man will be betrayed and they will condemn him. And ultimately what happens is he says, you know, basically, I will be judged and I will be condemned. And Jesus now is talking to this woman. He's thinking at a completely different level, right? Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is that? Why is it that if you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation? It's because Jesus is going to take the condemnation. Jesus will take the hit. Jesus will take the stone. Jesus will face the boulder of judgment. In John chapter 19, there's another trial. Jesus is standing before Pilate. And Pilate is in front of the Jews. And basically he says, I find no basis for a charge against this man, against Jesus. He's completely innocent, in other words. Even I, who is the authority, I don't find any reason to convict him. But the people respond with two words. Crucify. Crucify. They've convicted him. They've judged him. They've condemned him. This woman, you know, she's guilty, she's condemned, she's naked, and she's alone. But Jesus, he's innocent. He's not guilty. This woman was guilty. Jesus is innocent. He's innocent, but he's, yet he's judged, he's condemned. They strip him naked in front of everybody. And on the cross, he's totally alone. Everyone's turned away from him. His friends have run from him. His father, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His father has turned his back on him. He's completely, totally, utterly alone. In other words, in Isaiah 53, it says he was cut off from the land of the living. He's now only only among the dead. Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for us as a result. Why? Religion says you are either guilty or you're not guilty. So as a result, you're either condemned or you're not condemned. But Christianity says you are guilty but not condemned. Why? Because Jesus was condemned for you. Jesus took the hit for you. Jesus said, here's how I will bring together the law and my love. Here's how I will embrace both the law and grace 
Here's how I will embrace both the law and at the same time embrace this woman. The stone will be rolled, rolled over my grave. Basically what he's saying is over my dead body will these stones ever hit you because they will be pelted at me. The punishment that you deserve will be pelted at me. God's wrath will be thrown like boulders hurled against me and I will take the hit. And I took the hit on the cross for you. Completely for you. He says, it is finished. Completely for you. You know, you know what that means? You know what that gets for us? That means that you have the ultimate advocate speaking for you, pleading for you. Why? Because Jesus was alone. Utterly alone. You have the ultimate perfect defense speaking for you, pleading for you, not just on the basis of God's love, but on the basis of his justice. Because God would not be so unjust as to punish you twice for the same crime. He's not unjust. That's why you need him to be just. That's why you need the law. But Jesus took that punishment for us. That makes God both just and loving. That makes Jesus both embracing the law and grace. You need both. And that's what makes him whole. To deny one and to just uphold the other will throw your life awry. If you say, you know what, you don't have to worry about God's justice, just know that he is loving. That will ruin your life. It will corrode your soul. And to say that, you know, God is just a God of justice and you forget about his love, it will destroy your soul. You will never find rest. Do you see that? You have to have both. That's how you experience the embrace of God, the embrace of the Father. That's the key to gentleness and confidence in your life. It's the key to gentleness because you did nothing to earn it. Jesus took the wrath. You didn't deserve it. There's nothing you did or earned to deserve God's favor. You did nothing to earn it, and as a result, that's going to make you gentle. You're, not, you're going to stop throwing rocks at other people. It's going to make you more submissive. You're going to become meeker. But, you know, you also know that the embrace of the Father, the love of the Father is for you. That Jesus didn't just do it just to be obedient. He did it out of his gladness because of his love for you. And then he says, I am with you. I am with you to the end of the age. Sin no more. In other words, he says, I know you. I see you. I know you're broken. You have sinned. You have power. I am with you. That power that rose me from the dead is now with you. That's going to give you courage. On the one hand, you have utter gentleness and courage. Jesus doesn't say, sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. That's not what he says to the woman. He says, neither do I condemn you. Sin no more. Go and sin no more. It wasn't conditional. It was a foundation. He says, you are not condemned. Now you can stop sinning. That's going to make you incredibly submissive and incredibly courageous at the same time. Do you see that? Plunge your failure, plunge your brokenness, plunge your guilt, your guilt. A lot of us, you know, if you have guilt, you can't sleep at night. If you have overwhelming guilt, plunge your guilt, that life of sin, those habitual sins that you just can't overcome, plunge it into the grace of God. Trust in his work. Trust in his righteousness in you, with you. Let the power of Christ shape you and change you. How did it change her? Was she changed? It's kind of open-ended, right? But you know it was changed. You know why? Here's why. Everyone's gone. All the men are gone, right, in this, in this narrative. So who's left? Who's the only person who could have been an eyewitness to have this passage written in the Bible? It's the woman. 
the woman told the story. She was there. She was the eyewitness account. That means her life was changed. Do you see that? Her life had been transformed to the point where now thousands of years later, you know, thousands of years from now, I don't know how many of us people are going to be talking about, but they're talking about this woman. History has shown so much cruelty to the woman, but they're talking about this woman. Are you always upset at people because, you know, you know what's best and they don't, you know, that makes you unsubmissive. You know, are you always angry at God, you know, because God isn't doing things your way? That makes you incredibly unsubmissive. You're going to be confident, but not gentle. You know, I know what's right. I know what's right for that person. I know what's right in my life. You know, are you fearful of others, on the other hand? Really afraid? Uh, you wanna, you're working to maintain just being perceived a certain way in your life? You know, you're over-submissive. You know, you're gentle, but not confident. You know, are you broken? You're like beat up? You know, you're the, you're the one that was pelted with rocks. You have to go to him because he doesn't blame you. The blame is gone. The condemnation is gone. You know, so stop being a victim. You know, are you, you know, you feel guilty in your life? Just go to Jesus. See what Jesus has done on the cross for you. Let his grace, let his love melt you. That's the beginning of restoration. That is the beginning. Do you see that? Do you get it? I mean, this woman, she got it. Do you get it? Let's pray.